This is an interview with Carlos Gutierrez, drummer for Fueled by Fire, on Sunday, October 3rd, 2021, by Nick Perkel. Now, Carlos, tell me about getting your very first drum set. Oh, man, I think uh, my very first drum set, dude, uh, I think like everybody, I, I listened to your uh, to your podcast with Jerry from Bonded by Bullet, Witch Haven, and he was saying how he, he got his first bass was uh, through Christmas. Same thing, man, I got... I got my first uh, kit. Um, can't remember the year exactly, but it was it was a Christmas gift from my parents, and they knew that that I was uh, into playing the drums. I've been wanting drums for quite a while as a kid, and and uh, you know, like like all drummers start playing on pots and pans and shit around the house, and uh, and uh, mine was like Avon boxes because my grandmother she was uh, she was an Avon lady, so I had plenty of like boxes. So I was just like using like hangers as sticks and stuff like that just to like smack on these boxes but yeah that was my that was my first drum kit it was like I was like uh 14 or so 13 14 years old when I got my first drum kit I think I was like 14 but yeah it was a Christmas gift man when you were younger can you tell me about like any music schools private tutors or conservatories you were a part of to develop yourself as a musician um I'm self-taught uh I, the only type of like uh, teaching of any type of percussion that I did was in high school. Actually, um, there was a percussion class. It was it was a it was called World Percussion, and um, what it was it was like a steel pan band that they had just introduced to the school, and they had like background like um, drummers that played like timbales, like talking drums, and like congas and different types of the, like world like drums. And um, I was playing. I was playing uh, those type of drums. I played like all those like uh, timbales and stuff like that. And uh, and then later on, as I as I progressed in my schooling or whatever in in that class through the years, I I, be, I played bass for the steel pan band. And it was cool, man. Like we we would travel and play like uh play like Disneyland and Knott's Berry Farm and like like these dinner events and things like that that they would invite us to. So that was basically like the only type of schooling that I had with music at all. Um, and it wasn't like traditional drums. Like that was like the music, uh, it was the music room. So there was like a traditional drum set there, but they didn't let our class uh, like hop on it or anything or touch any of those instruments. Cause that was like for the jazz band and everything. So anytime the teacher like walked out, I would like jump in, jump behind that kit and like play as much as I can, which wasn't, which was very low and like just trying to like just do like a groove or something. But yeah, that was like my very first time, like actually like getting behind a kit and like seeing a kit like live actually and like, and, uh, and playing man. But uh, yeah, it was like a steel pan band world, world percussion band that I was in, in in high school. That was the only type of schooling that I got. What was it like forming Field by Fire? Same thing. Uh, me and, uh, and my friend Sal, who started the band with me, Sal Zapata. Um, he, he wanted to play guitar. We're into like, you know, metal, like uh, System of the Down, Slipknot, a lot of the new metal type stuff, Rage Against the Machine. He wanted to play guitar and I wanted to play drums. And he told me like, yo, let's, let's start a band one time, uh, one day. And uh, he's like, I'm going to get a guitar. And I was like, tight, I want to play drums. So I'll, I'll, I'll get some drums. So that's when I asked, you know, my parents for, uh, for some drums for Christmas. 
um as soon as we got them man we were just kind of like learning our instruments and we we actually like just kind of started the band uh with some with another friend of ours named adrian gallego and he was supposed to be playing bass and he got bass like a year later than us and was kind of jamming with us but uh yeah that that's how fuel by fire started um we were in high school and uh just wanted to play music and then uh literally got instruments for christmas and just started jamming and the way that fuel by fire just kind of came about we were uh we were at a talent show at school and watching our friends band which is called horseman of the apocalypse and um they were blowing us away man these guys were amazing at their instruments already like in high school and and their 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 music was just like heavy they were like a death metal band and um watching them like super inspired us to like really get it started and like uh, i remember a friend my friend adrian was like hey uh, I, I think i have a name for the band it's called the uh, fueled by fire and we just like we didn't have a name and we we're just like that sounds cool like let's just name the band that and i don't even think we we're playing or trying to play originals yet or i think we had like one song and it was called fueled by fire but like other than that, we were playing like System of a Down covers, a lot of System of a Down covers, which was pretty cool. But uh, yeah, that's how Fuel by Fire started, man, back in high school. Now, what was the L.A. metal scene like when the full length Spread the Fire came out? <clears throat> man, the L.A. metal scene was, at that time, was uh, pretty rowdy, dude. Uh, like at that time... Uh, you know, a year, a couple years before, like 2004, 2005, uh, we were playing a lot of backyards and things like that and uh, breaking out into L.A. because we come from Norwalk, which is county of L.A., but still like southeast suburb, suburb of L.A. And um, over there, we we're playing nothing. But like when we would play backyards, it was like a bunch of punk gigs. So coming out to like East Plain, East L.A. and Compton and 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 backyards out here in, in in LA were were different. That's where like a lot of the metalheads were. It was all punk metal and like it was all mixed and uh, it was cool. So breaking out into LA took a while until like 2004. I mean 2005, 2006. Um, things just kind of started to work turn around. We started to get into the clubs, playing knit, like the knitting factory, the whiskey, um, just playing smaller like like Monday nights and things like that and uh, having to sell a bunch of tickets and things like that. And uh, we always brought a crowd and we always sold tickets. And, um, and uh, so it was cool to finally get into the whiskey and be able to do that and like be able to get like a real crowd and uh, real like uh, support from like metalheads, man. But when Spread the Fire came out, I think uh, that's when everything was just like, going nuts out here everybody was super into into the into the underground bands like us and merciless death and and bonded by blood and and uh, and it was it was rowdy dude like the pits were crazy the shows were rowdy and uh all the bands i, I just remember the energy was just like it was cool man we're we're all kids not like you know what else do we have to do other than just play some sick-ass music and just go have fun and go nuts so it was it was a cool time, 2006, around uh, when Spread the Fire came out. It was, it was a lot of support from uh, from the LA scene, and uh, it was rowdy, man. Now, what do you remember the most about getting to play uh, in Japan's Truth Rash Fest when Plunging into Darkness came out? 
Oh man. I mean, uh, just going to Japan is amazing. Japan's an amazing country, dude. Uh, what I can remember it was, it was super fucking cold and it was, uh, the first time it snowed in Osaka in like, they said like 20 years or something like that for, for some odd reason. And, um, but that experience was amazing. And I mean, uh, the, the shows were great. The support out there is, is amazing. Uh, you know, this is the first time we had like people coming and meeting us at, at our hotel and like asking for pictures and autograph. And it was just like, Whoa, this is different. This is a, this isn't what we're used to, you know? So that, that was a whole different experience in itself. And then, uh, playing the fest was, was cool. We played two nights, um, and, uh, two different sets uh each night and uh it was it was super cool man i mean i, I love japan i love i went back out there and, uh, a couple of years ago with excel but the first time I, I went out there with fbf was it was another experience and uh what i remember man it was just uh everybody's just super into it out there uh really appreciative the support out there is just different like they're really out there for the music and really appreciative that that you come out there to, to play these shows for them, you know, cause they don't get so many bands from, from the U S or from Canada. Like, cause we went out there with Razor and uh, they don't get so many bands out there to be touring. Uh, so, so they're definitely appreciative when bands do come and, and, you know, tear it up man, and give them a good show. So um, other than that, I mean, it was super cool. Cause we got to see the city, uh, Mickey, Mickey Mosh, we call him, is the is uh, is our friend uh, that took us out there and he showed us around, took us to the Osaka Castle, took us to I can't remember exactly where it's called, but we saw some really cool stuff, man, some historic stuff out there, which is which a cool experience. So can't wait to get back out there. What other sites did you see besides, I assume, Osaka Castle and things of that nature? I think it was called Niri or Nori. Um, I can't remember the city? pronunciation. You're talking the about a city? It. Yeah, it's another, it's another city, but it's Nara. There you go. Where there's like, dude, there's like deer everywhere. And like, they're just like, like sacred deer everywhere. And it was like this temple that we went to, to go see like the biggest Buddha um, in like, in that part of Asia. And it was, it was cool that, that so we got to see that. And uh, that was, a, that was a cool experience. What was going on as you were writing Trapped in Perdition? Man, what was going on? Well, that was 2012, 2013, I think. We were, we were on Noise Out Records, and uh, we actually wrote that full album and sent it in. And uh, they told us, actually, this, lot, this album has to be a little bit longer. Because I think the contract that we had was like uh, like the like each album had to be like 45 minutes long, which was kind of weird, but for Trapped in Perdition, we just wanted to go a little bit more experiment with a little bit more death metal sounding. Chris, Chris was, uh, start, I think he started Skeletal Remains like a year before, I think in like 2011. So he was like super influenced with death metal at the time. And so was I, I was, I was pretty influenced at death, in death metal at that time. And me and Chris are, uh, we're the 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 writers mostly. We're, we, we're the ones that mostly wrote. I'm I'm a I'm a writer with whoever the guitarist at the time comes in, I guess. So like, like right now, me and Rubio write a lot of the stuff, 
but uh, at that time uh, it was me and Chris and uh, like I said we were super into death metal at that time and uh, we just uh, I mean it's kind of kind of a weird question of what was going on but uh, can't really recall exactly what was going on but I mean we were in that garage mostly every day like literally writing and practicing and writing and practicing to to get this out because uh, we had a we did have a time, kind of a time frame and we wanted to get our studio. We wanted to get into the studio before we headed out on tour um, in the winter that we're doing a tour with creator um, Morbid Angel Nile. So our plan was to go to Florida, record with Eric Rutan, and then fly from there to Europe and do the tour, which it ended up happening. We ended up uh, accomplishing that, but it was, it was a tight schedule. Like, we we recorded the album in two weeks which which is a super hardcore time crunch like and like he's i don't think he's ever done recording an album in like two weeks i think the the mo the least is like a month so it was like it was pretty it was pretty rough in the studio man it was like all day every day just uh straight up 12 hour days for two weeks in the studio just laying it down man but uh, yeah, cool, cool times, I guess. Now, personally, what was the most wild adventure when it came to past FBF concerts you've played? <clears throat> wild adventure, probably being uh, Brazil, man. 2013, uh, yeah, 2013, we went out to Brazil to go to do a tour. It was supposed to be a full-on South American tour, and. Um, ended up just being Brazil because I think we were supposed to be out there for like three and a half weeks, but we, we ended up having to cut the tour like within uh, two weeks, like into it. Um, man, that tour was, was, was wild, man. Um, we were touring in a little tiny Fiat, um, you know, uh, five people. It was a driver plus four of us with, uh, our guitars and our like bags of like clothes and whatever we took in a tiny Fiat just packed. And some of these drives, man, through Brazil were rowdy. I mean, like, like pouring rain, like Amazonian through going through like some Amazon type shit, like, uh, literally going through like slums and stuff like that. And like, um, 10 hour drives, like just all cramped up in this like Fiat. Sometimes it was like 12 hour drives. It was just, it was it was super weird. So I would say that was probably the most adventurous time because we saw a lot of crazy shit and we experienced a lot of crazy shit. I mean, the first night we got out there, we played um, Sao Paulo. And uh, I remember uh, Rick was wearing an L.A. Dodgers hat and one of the dudes told him, yo, uh, you might you might want to take that L.A. hat off because around here that's like some kind of gang. So they recognize that L.A as a gang so he had to take off his hat and then they witnessed some dude like getting like pickpocketed and like <laughs> and then i remember we were driving like from the venue back to our hotel and there was this uh homeless like this street kind of like skid row in la but it was just like um they were like oh yeah this street over there and it was super dark like you can just see like people like zombies dude like just walking around and he was like, yeah, man, like that place right there is like no cops go over there anymore. That it's forbidden. Like they just forgot about that place. So like everybody's all drugged out, homeless in this area. 
And I remember he's telling us this and he had to like slam on the brakes, dude. Cause like there was a, a homeless, like junkie guy, just like in the middle of the road, like just curled up, like sleeping, just like, like nothing. He almost fucking ran him over, man. And we're just like, holy shit. This is the first night, you know, we get into Brazil and we're witnessing all this crazy shit. But um, the shows were, were great, dude. I mean, like I said, this is another country that a lot of bands don't get to go to a lot, especially a lot of U.S. bands. And um, we were we were playing a lot of smaller, like, cities within Brazil. So, so not just, like, Sao Paulo and Rio and the big cities. We're hitting a lot of small space, small spots. So it was really cool to, to for, for people, you know, it was, they were super appreciative. They were... They were like, what the fuck are you doing here in this city, you know? And we're just like, we're touring, man, you know? Like, they're like, thanks for coming. And we never get bands from from out of the, from out of the country here. And so that was that was cool. And every show, other than other than like experiencing all this crazy stuff, and also like while we're touring and hitting like each of these each of these cities, at this time Brazil was going through this massive um, like protest because I can't, I think they were I can't remember what exactly was going on but I know it was like something with taxes were getting raised and like and like bus fares were getting raised and like other amongst other things and each city we hit we literally just missed like these massive protests with like thousands of thousands of thousands of people like within the city so like we were following this protest like just going on i remember like um getting woken up like one one morning it was like a massive protest just walking down the street and we just hear them like chanting and marching and i look out the window and i'm just seeing this like crowd of people just going to the street i'm just like holy shit like this is nuts like i never experienced anything like that especially in you know in another country you know so i think brazil was probably like the rowdiest most craziest time we've toured and played shows and and uh getting to play with our brothers and violator and in their hometown was was another uh, was another cool experience you know we, we toured with those guys in europe in 2009 or 2010 and uh so to get to play with them in, in their hometown was was super fucking cool so yeah man uh i definitely want to go back because i didn't want to cut it to cut it short the reason why we cut it short was because Chris actually got like sick out there. He got, I don't even know what kind of flu he caught, but we had to take him to like the hospital, like in the middle of the night to get like some kind of shot. And uh, he was like, he was like, he did not feel great. He was had like this mad fever dude. And that was another experience. And uh, just driving through these roads and uh, some of the promoters were giving us problems about payment and things like that. So, a lot of those problems were, were the reason why we had to cut the tour because we were supposed to do like Colombia, Chile, um, Argentina, Peru, but we weren't able to do that. So hopefully we do get back out there and uh, hopefully it's a little more better organized, <laughs> but it was an experience and uh, I'll, never, I don't, I'll never forget it. Now, can you tell me what the L.A. metal scene is like right now to perform as a musician? Uh, right now, man, it's it's a little weird, especially with with everything going on and restrictions and things like that. And a lot of the venues out here are like ran by Live Nation, so 
I'm not exactly what type of shows are going through there. I know we're more of an independent band. We like to play more independent uh, venues and stuff like that, you know. So, and honestly, I haven't been to a metal show since probably 2000, before the pandemic, obviously. So, yeah, I can't even say how, how it is right now, man. It's, I mean, I see people posting and things like that, and they seem to be doing pretty well, like at, uh, at at these smaller independent spots, but I'm not sure about shows that are going on at at like uh, bigger venues like the like the Regent out here in downtown or um, anything else. I mean, the, we did play a whiskey show in August, and that was a really good show. I mean, it was it was sold out. We played with the uh, Evil Dead Hyrax, and uh, it was a sold out show. So that I mean that that was good. That was a really good show. So I mean. Uh, everybody is super into it, you know, uh, the response was great. You know, a lot of people hadn't seen us play, uh, actually we played one show right before the pandemic in uh, February of 2020. And, um, that one was another good one. It was packed, packed, um, basically sold out show. Well, that was a free show. So it was, it was, it was packed. Yeah. I mean, I guess the see the scenes, uh, People are hungry, dude. People want to see live shows. People want to go out there and just, uh, you know, be themselves, man, and just hang out, party, and have a good time. So, um, I don't know. I mean, we're we're setting up a show in uh, in November for our release show, so hopefully that one turns out well. And uh, yeah, man, I'm not really sure. Do you have a date set for the concert yet? No, not yet. Uh, we're in contact with our with our booking agent, or not our booking agent with. Um, with our promoter, our friend, her name's Kim. She runs uh, Born for Burning, so we're in contact with her. She's uh, she's in contact with some venues and giving us some options. So, not sure, but the the no, the release is uh, November twelfth. So we want to get something around there. You're putting out the Past, Present, and No Future EP, Part One in the fall and Part Two in the spring. How many of these EPs are yeah. planned? And can you tell me a bit about each one? Um, it's just going to be two part EP. Um, the plan was to do uh, a four song EP, and uh, that was supposed to be sometime released last year. Um, we were in the studio, you know, things happened, so it got pushed back to this year. But uh, the plan was to do a four song EP, and then uh, we got in contact with M Theory, and he wanted to he wanted to put it out for us. So then uh, we kind of. Uh, thought about different things why don't we do two seven inch uh releases two songs on each part so this first part which is uh bloodshed bloodshed and another song called disrupt which will be out in november and like you said in spring the second part uh would be a song called mangled truth and um but uh yeah, it's just it's just two parts, two seven, two different seven inches, uh, two different color, like uh, covers. Um, one is a black. Uh, the first one's gonna be a white cover. The next one's gonna be a black cover. So, uh, yeah, it's just just something we kind of thought of. Uh, we've never did any kind of seven inch release, so it was just something that we wanted to do. Uh, we just wanted to put it out, man. Uh, I had the I had written these songs in two thousand like eighteen or nineteen. And um, at that time, we were pretty much on hiatus. And then we decided to, like, 
all right, let's try and do something. Since I had I had these songs written, I was like, yo, let's let's try and put these out. Let's do something. Let's get back together and uh, and so yeah, we decided to do that. That's why we played that show in uh, last in 2020, 2020 in February. We we're supposed to do some touring. We we're supposed to go out to Brutal Assault and do some do some uh, Euro touring, but pandemic hit, so that's what uh, pushed everything back. And yeah, right now it's a uh, it's a little weird, but yeah, we're uh, putting that out. Uh, November twelfth is the first part. Bloodshed and disrupt. Uh, past, present, no future. Yeah, I saw on your Bandcamp, uh, you got the track list for the part two. You got non-existent and mangled truth. Could you tell me a little bit about non-existent for the first for the first part? Um, bloodshed. I know Rick. Rick Rick writes most of the lyrics. I wrote one one song, which is called Mangled Truth. That's gonna come on the second part. But I know the first song, Bloodshed, is, is was inspired by. Uh, we played in France in 2012 at some place called Bataclan, and that is the place that got attacked by um, a terrorist attack in 2014, I believe, when the Eagles of Death Metal were out there. Um, so he got inspired by that whole event because it just kind of took him, you know, once he, once, once you hear about that, like he kind of took it back to like being there and knowing the venue and just kind of putting himself in that spot. And, uh, so bloodshed is basically about like this terrorist attack that happened in Bata, at the Bataclan venue in France. Um, the next song, uh, what is it? Uh, disrupt. Um, honestly, I have not read the lyrics on that, so or I have read the lyrics, but I just can't remember what it's about, dude. I can look, I can look at the lyrics right now. But uh, yeah, I mean, those those are those are Rick's lyrics. Rick Rick writes most of the lyrics. I just write most of the music. I see. And did we go over uh, non-existent and mangled truth? Mangled truth is basically about. Um, mm-hmm. The corruption that, you know, all these leaders are, these world leaders and uh, and uh, the, the media and everything that, that the world, I guess, watches, or they just kind of, Mangle Truth is just basically about them mangling the truth, uh, giving you a whole different truth than what the reality is, and... Um, I believe government has been doing a lot of that uh, for quite some time. Um, you know, not only what a lot of things that are going now, but you know, past past things like like uh, cannabis laws and drug laws and and everything that 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 they have oppressed people with um, is a is a lot of truth that is that is not you know out there or people that don't know about it and. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a crazy world we're living in, man. <laughs> There's a lot of, uh, mis- mis- misinformation, a lot of misinterpretations out there. And, uh, and, uh, that's basically what that song's about. And the other one, uh, I'm not, I can't remember exactly what non-existent was. Right now, how frequent are your practice <laughs> sessions and what are they like? Dude, we try to practice every Sunday, but, uh, it's basically like uh, all our schedules. We're all we all have our own lives. We all have schedules. We all have uh, 
you know, jobs and things that we do. So uh, we try to get together every Sunday, but sometimes that doesn't happen. Like today we're supposed to jam, but uh, Rick Rick actually won some like uh, uh, football, some Rams tickets on the on the radio like the other day. So he's like, "Yo, <laughs> I'm gonna end up going to this Ram this Rams game." So we we ended up uh, canceling. But yeah, we try to get at least once a week because our schedules are just all over the place. Like. One of our dudes gets out like super late, like at eight or nine sometimes, and we don't have a studio or anything, so we jam at my parents' uh, garage. We've been jamming there ever since we've pretty much started, so uh, we just keep it. We just keep it over there, and uh, we have, you know, we got limited time out there. We don't, we don't try to practice too late. We try to practice during the day, and uh, so yeah, we try to get together at least once a week. But it's even even that's hard, man. What is your most cherished possession when it comes to fueled by fire memorabilia? Man, probably just my 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 records, man. My the to have the actual physical copy of what you put out, you know. Um, I think those would be my 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 cherished uh, possessions, you know, framing them and being able to put them on the wall and just being like, yo, I I wrote this or I put this out and people people like it people support it people it's helped people through things um you know like things like that i think uh, just having the physical copy of of your accomplishment of what you put out is pretty much my my prized possession from the band you know that's that's how i feel i usually cut and there's but there's things that i that i collected over the years like uh tons of flyers from like european tours and like I'll I'll buy magazines if I see a, if I see something of us in there like I've I've seen some magazines out in Europe that that I run across like an ad for one of our albums I'm like oh shit so I buy it and uh, I remember when Spread the Fire came out the the metal Europe uh, the European branch of Metal Blade they sent us like this huge like binder of all the magazines and all the like webzines that that they promoted us in. And so I have that binder that I cherish cause it has like everything from that early time. And I mean, I have video and, and all kinds of like, I'm the one who co- keeps like everything. So, so I have like vid- all the video, I have uh, tons of pictures. I have all our vinyls, numbered vinyl, uh, numbered vinyls, numbered CD, like every original CD. I have things that are, I used to have a mug that I, that a fan gave us that he made for us. Um, I have like things from like Hellfest, like this bottle of wine that they gave us at Hellfest and like another bottle of wine from France that um, some, some guy just gave us cause we were out there, you know? So I, I'm the, I'm the one who collects a, a lot of the stuff. So I have shirts, everything. Like I, I'm pretty sure I have every shirt that we've made, but I'm not too sure. I gotta, I gotta go through all of them. But I know I have our first, our very first shirt that we made. So yeah, I guess I'm a collector of all of our memorabilia, man. So I have it, I have it all. But I think my most prize is just seeing the actual physical copy of what you you put out. Now, what's your favorite urban legend or ghost story from LA? <laughs> The urban legend, damn! I would say the Cecil Hotel. 
in uh, downtown L.A. Um, that Cecil Hotel, I don't know if you ever heard about it. Actually, there's a Netflix documentary on it now. If you watch the Netflix documentary, then you know what I'll be talking about. But uh, that the hotel is pretty creepy in itself. Uh, it's an old school hotel and in uh, basically like on Main Street, which is a couple of streets uh, away from Skid Row. So, you know, a lot. So it's it's pretty rough around that area, first of all. Um, I know that they do like uh, low income housing on half of the half of that hotel. And then the other half is like hotel. But I think it's closed down now. But before that, um, people have stayed there like uh, uh, Richard Ramirez, like during like a few murders that he has done. Um, there was a there's the whole Lisa Lamb case. Um that has gone on there. There's like, there's been uh, people that have committed suicide there, like jumping out of the building and like just all kinds of like dark, crazy stuff that goes on at this hotel. And uh, I think they finally closed it down like a couple years ago. I'm not even too sure, but yeah, man, it's it's been open for since the twenties. Um, it's been a hotel and, and uh, low income housing and, so yeah, if if you watch that Netflix documentary, you you would know, but or read anything about it. But the Cecil Hotel, like, uh, it's a pretty crazy crazy spot here in downtown that is has a lot of urban legend and a lot of uh, crazy things happening there. Final words. Final words, man. Uh, thanks for for uh, for the interview. You know, uh, everybody, thanks for for your support. Thanks for checking checking this out and. Uh, and um, past, present, no future is released. Uh, actually, part one is released November twelfth, and part two I think is going to be released in March of twenty twenty two. So it's quite a while. But uh, yeah, uh, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate the questions. Appreciate the support. Um, hopefully, we can meet someday and hang out and have a beer, or if you don't drink, smoke, or whatever it is, man, just hang out. <laughs> Definitely, man. Uh, hang out and drink and yeah. watch some horror movies or something. Really appreciate yeah, the dude, time, man. Be... Thank you. Yeah, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Uh, hopefully we can talk soon and keep in touch. Definitely, man. This has been an interview with Carlos Gutierrez, drummer for Field by Fire, on Sunday, October 3rd, 2021, by Nick Perkel.